0: Hello and welcome to Glossonomia: Conversations about the sounds of speech. I am Philip Thompson, and this here is Eric Armstrong. How you doing, Eric? I'm great. How are you, Phil? I'm so totally groovy, and uh, I am. I, I think it, we might want to let the cat out of the bag. Yes. Uh, since we will have uh, this experience of déjà vu for you and I all over again. That we yesterday we recorded an episode on this topic. And it was glorious. It was a thing of beauty. And it was uh, not recorded.
1: Yes. So, um, I didn't record it. It's my uh, well, fault. Mea culpa. Um, uh, literally, we got as to. As I said,
0: I always like it when you make mistakes because that brings me up to a level of even competence that I can feel good about.
1: Very kindly said. <laughs> um, so, what are we talking about today?
0: Today, in a sense, we're tidying up the remaining strands of R that we haven't fully dealt with. Uh, the last episode we did about affricates, but the preceding episode was about R as a vowel. And in that, we introduced a lot of concepts. But today, we have a little bit of work to do to talk about how those post-vocalic R's occur in various lexical sets. And uh, then we have a little bit of work to do talking about how those R's occur in links between syllables.
1: Post-vocalic? Tell me about that, Yes, indeed.
0: I I feel convinced that we might have explained this once before, but let's let's start there. That's a great place to start. Uh, The vocoid is the vowel. And so things that are post-vocal are post-vowel. So, uh, I was about to say R's occur but really anything you could describe as occurring pre-vocalic or post-vocalic, or, potentially, if there's a vowel on either side, intervocalically. And in this case, pre-vocalic R is ra-ri-ro, or ra-ri-ro, I suppose, if it's that kind of R. And uh, post-vocalic is after the vowel. R, ear, air, or.
1: And even... Er and er. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's an interesting one because certainly in spelling, in a word like brother, the R is occurring post the spelled vowel, but as we'll discuss in a little bit, the R er itself is the syllable. It's not after some other vowel. But let's go ahead and call that one post vocalic. It's post vocalic roticity, let's say. Sure. And then, as we'll discuss, I think, a little bit later, uh, an intervocalic r could be arrears, a, a I suppose. Around. That's got, <laughs> yes, around is much better. Get the
1: tushy out of it.
0: Uh, yes. So I do want to catch up two points. Uh, one is a leftover from our African episode. Uh, that's the one that I recently edited, and I noticed that we spent a long time scratching our beards, if we had them, about the what was on the Wikipedia page and the very strange use of diacritics that we couldn't really figure out. Uh, what we had noted is that under the section of murmured vowels, uh, or rather murmured uh, consonants uh, in some Africans, they were using the wrong diacritic, really. And uh, what they ended up using, what seemed a little odd to me, was... A dental mark, which is like a staple with the pointy bits pointing down, and under another one, an apical, uh, uh, an apical diacritic, which is a staple
1: uh, a with staple. the pointy bits pointing up.
0: Exactly, and the reason I hesitate is that there was also a place where they used retracted diacritic. Now, we discussed how that might actually be reasonable. That if a d moves into a j, which is post-vocalic, then the d itself is probably uh, post-vocalic. Not post-vocalic. Post-alveolar. Post-alveolar. I'm mixing the two. Uh, So that's reasonable. But it has nothing to do with murmured voicing. And that breathy voice diacritic, which is what they ought to have used, is a double dot that's underneath the symbol.
1: Sort of like a diuresis underneath.
0: Exactly, exactly. So, we will, I'm sure, in our spare time, go to the Wikipedia talk page and uh, make a note about that. Uh, But if you want to beat us to it, please feel free. So, enough said about that. Uh, Let's go back to the question of centering diphthongs, which we may have referred to, but I don't think we've uh, defined fully. A centering diphthong is essentially what you have when you have a post-vocalic R. You have some vowel followed by R, and that leads us to these diphthongs. And That's because we think of the R component as being something of a vowel. And again, we talked a little bit about that last time we talked about R's. R's as vowels. So uh, let's go through, bit by bit, we can talk about the lexical set, we can talk a little bit about how one might transcribe it phonetically, uh, and maybe a little bit of the variations that occur.
1: Okay, so, so first uh, up is near.
0: Exactly. Uh, first up, I suppose, because its nucleus, that is the main part of the diphthong, is the highest frontest uh, one of our diphthongs. I don't know. If that's really why I think of it as the first one, but if I were to arrange them on a vowel chart, they'd they'd move in that way. So yes, near, uh, and that's all caps N E A R. That's the lexical set that includes fear, queer, steer, beer, and uh, you can see that there's double e or e a spelling followed by an r.
1: Sometimes i e.
0: Yeah, yes, peer, as in the jetty, not the nobleman. And uh, you might transcribe that with a small capital I, I, followed by a schwa, potentially with uh, roticity. So, a hooked schwa. So, ear, and I would pronounce that in that way, ear. There's a question about whether or not we would put another diacritic on top of that to let us know that it's a diphthong. And uh, in the lost episode, we did talk a little bit about that, I think. So uh, I, uh, both of us, I'm sure, it's been our practice in the past to put a brev mark over the second part of any diphthong. It's a convenient way of letting people know that it is a diphthong. It also describes... The fact that the second part, the the tail of the diphthong, is relaxed and short. Another way that you could do that is you could put a non-syllabic mark underneath that schwa. The non-syllabic mark is like the brev. I guess I didn't describe what the brev symbol is. It's a little scoop. A little smile. A of,
1: you called it a, a smile. And oh, yeah, that's nice, good. So to... a
0: little smile above the schwa. Or a frown underneath it is the non-syllabic mark. And that's not the traditional practice. The traditional practice is either to use the brev above or nothing at all. And uh, I noticed because my daughter was taking a Spanish linguistics class that all the Spanish texts used the non-syllabic mark. And I've started to see it in the wild more and more more people are using the non-syllabic mark to indicate a diphthong.
1: And it makes some sense. I, I think that you said... Now. Pardon. On Wikipedia they're doing it now.
0: See, all the cool kids are doing it. <laughs> but you don't use either of those, is that correct?
1: That's right. I, I just use the, the pair of symbols and I don't do anything to indicate that the second one is lesser. Um, I... I think that uh, generally my students are aware of the pairing of diphthong symbols. And also, uh, I do, if I'm in a situation where a pair of symbols next door to one another um, are they look a little similar to a diphthong, but they're actually in different sim- syllables, I'm going to put a period, or perhaps a stress mark, depending on context, uh, in between the two symbols that might mistakenly be... Taken for uh, uh, a
0: diphthong. Yeah, I suppose if you were saying be a man, that ear is similar to a diphthong ear, near, that we're talking about now. And if you wanted to be sure that nobody thought you were saying beer man, uh, you would want to put a period in between the e and the uh.
1: Similarly, if I had a word like uh, uh, the name Maria, uh, I might put a a period between the re-syllable and the uh. At speed, that might get elided Maria into a diphthong. Um, But
0: if it was Maria, then you definitely would have two separate syllables. I definitely would. All right. Terrific. So uh, we have a way of transcribing it that is either more narrow or more broad. We could also change what the vowel is in the neutral part, that is, the relaxed part of the diphthong. Uh, What might you change it
1: to, Phil?
0: Well, we could change it to the reversed lowercase e, which is higher than schwa, and put a roticity mark on that, indicating that the position of that neutral vowel is higher up above the schwa.
1: You uh, can conceive of a more open version, uh, Maria. Yeah. Uh, maybe someone with a German accent or something, or Nia uh, well, might it, use a turned type A as the second element.
0: In my German dictionary, they use the turned A in all such uh, situations. In German, here uh, uh, here uh, is transcribed as H E turned A here. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that kind of thing. Exactly. And, and even things like messe, Uh And we talked about that, I think. We did. In our vowel we did. Our episode. Okay, so onward. Onward. Um. Oh, I did want, to, before we move onward, I did want to say that it is also fairly common, and you can see this on J.C. Wells' blog, to put a consonant R in that position. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when indicating the rhotic pronunciation, it would be transcribed n. Lowercase, uh, or rather, small capital. <laughs> small capital I, followed by a right side up R to indicate uh, a phonemic R rather than any sort of rhoticized vowel.
1: And that allows for possible pronunciations like a Scots one, near, where we exactly. might get a fricative sound rather than a full bore trill, near.
0: And so what we're saying with that R is it's an R. It's an unspecified R.
1: It's just a much broader transcription, isn't it?
0: Terrific. So let's now go back to... I think we've covered NEAR.
1: Yes. So next up is SQUARE.
0: SQUARE is uh, all caps S-Q-U-A-R-E. And... uh, the simplest and uh, sort of broadest transcription that I would use would be epsilon, schwa with roticity, and I, of course, would like to put a brev over the second element, and you uh, you don't need to. Uh, it's about how narrow or how broad we want to be. It's. It might be worth saying that both of these, really, all of these uh, are... Another vowel followed by roticity. And we could think of them all in the terms that J.C. Well transcribes them. That is to say, they are kit followed by R, or dress followed by R. And square is that, is dress followed by R. Uh, Anything else about the transcription? I guess that we could say something about the realization that certainly in... California in the Midwest, we get a very tight, very high beginning point for near. Right. Uh, in in the too. upper Midwest, I and do you as well?
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, square. We can get a higher, tighter version. Yeah. You might want to use a lowercase e, so you're getting more of a square.
0: And certainly in the non-Rhotic version, we're getting more and more in the UK more square.
1: Very open, almost to an ash.
0: Yeah, exactly. Making it way, we've said about ash that it's uh, it's always checked, that there's never a place where a word in English ends with a, but in a non-rhotic accent that makes square very open, squa is essentially ending in a. All right, terrific. The next one or two is... Uh, no, actually, I should continue around the chart the way that I was aiming uh, and go to start. Oh, okay. Uh, which starts at the back of the chart, starts with R. Uh, so it's, I suppose you could say that it's bath with R or palm with oh, R. Yes. Although certainly the words that were in the start category uh, started with uh, an A pronunciation, start. start. And that's really preserved in Ireland. Yes. And uh, you, the historical process of shifting from start to start has been about the way R works on the vowel, the, the way R shades the vowel.
1: Mm-hmm. There's something about the physical action of the, the making of that R sound that pulls on the vowel and draws it back further in the mouth.
0: Absolutely. And so I would transcribe this uh, this diphthong as script A, a followed by hook, schwa, er, with a syllab- non-syllabic mark or a brev. Or not. Or not. Or not. And uh, in a non-rhotic accent, uh, you, you would expect this one to not have any second element, to become a monothong.
1: Mm. That's true in most non-rhotic accents, right? That they're going to be... A word like star will be star, not star. Yeah, yeah or it'll be sta. Or sta. Like star market." Exactly. In Boston, and, the grocery chain in in Boston.
0: And and that wasn't the case with near and square. In a lot of cases, you'll have... Uh, you won't have as much smoothing... I guess we haven't explained what smoothing and breaking are in this episode. Let's do it. Smoothing is the turning of diphthongs or triphthongs into monophthongs. So I like pi becomes I like pi. The second element is so soft that it smooths together into one monophthong. And breaking is when you take what would be considered a monophthong in most cases, uh, like kit, and you break it into two parts and say him.
1: And you can go even further and take a diphthong and break it into two syllables. So yes. near could become nia, and we exactly. get a break in it.
0: And that, at least in, in many, many cases, is the case for near and square. Near and square are less likely to smooth and more likely to break. Uh, So, here, you mean he's here, uh, or square, in a lot of non-rhotic accents, you'll hear that broken, but you would never hear start broken. Start doesn't make any sense that doesn't mean that start can't be pronounced non-rhotically but with a diphthong. And so the description that I gave of the transcription, script a schwa with a hook, you could also do script a schwa with no hook, start. And somewhere in the historic uh, loss of roticity, that must have been the way those diphthongs were pronounced. Uh, nowadays, our P speakers kind of don't do that. I can't really think of a place where start, start, just in places where people have very, very light roticity. You can imagine that. And it really, to my ear, sounds like roticity. Start, start. Start, yeah. I hear the R there in the presence of the schwa. Yes. All right, if I move up the back of the vowel chart, now I get into... North, I guess, is where I would get to next. Mm. And uh, again, capital N O R T H, north. With roticity, I would transcribe it open O or turned C, schwa with a hook, and I would put a brev mark over it, and you wouldn't. (laughs) Uh, And so we get north. Now, the degree of roticity on that north uh is something that's adjustable and has been really for all of these
1: how would we uh, how would we mark more or less
0: well that's uh, i I read a fascinating article written by Eric Armstrong and Paul Meyer, which oh. seemed to indicate that one could actually add progressively more hooks to the uh to the hooked schwa so you can Lengthen your roticity in a way. Well, that doesn't indicate a length in time necessarily. It's just you're adding rhotic marks to the roticized schwa.
1: And that was our solution to sort of dialing it up is just add more little hooks on the end. And uh, the fonts conveniently tack them onto the end of one another. So that uh, little bit of typography m- makes it work. It's
0: an elegant solution, and it gives you some sort of range to be able to talk about degrees of roticity, and it has the wonderful advantage of being like a pirate, because it adds a hook to it. So, our
1: has many hooks, laddie. <laughs> and that's a good point to add, that it is possible, of course, for these lexical sets, for things like start and north to uh, have a pronunciation where the the hook goes straight onto the nucleus so that we're getting start and north and the, the roticity doesn't gradually come on, it's there from the beginning.
0: Yeah, and that's really about the physiology or the, the articulatory gesture. It's a lot harder to think of ear uh, to doing near realized as a roticized i mm, is yes. sort of a physical impossibility.
1: Yeah. You tried and failed in our previous episode on. Exactly. Oh, so well, let's not go there. I don't want to shame you. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Thank so you. let's. But I'll rub it in. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, it is possible on the more open sounds to have that roticity from the beginning. So So
0: let's uh, go up. We've done force, uh, and we could say start with roticity in the ah. Uh, We could do force, force, with some roticity starting pretty close. And part of that is that the tongue position is already pretty much in the territory where you could add this extra action of tongue bracing and tongue midline raising probably, Mm. maybe even tongue retraction, to add the quality of r to it. Uh, I've put force above north because for people who make the distinction between north and force, force tends to be made with an O beginning. So we could say that north is transcribed as open O schwa and force is pronounced O schwa. Uh, So force
1: is north of north. Uh, Yes.
0: (laughs) On the chart. Uh, If you'll force me to make that distinction, then yes. Uh, so that's uh, exactly right. Unfortunately, I- 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 those people who do make that distinction aren't always using roticity, and they aren't necessarily always realizing it in those places. So I'd be disinclined to reflexively transcribe force as always with an O. Part of that has to do with my own prejudice that I done grew up all the time not making a distinction between north and force, and they're both pretty open for me. Although I did have a student a long, long time ago, before I really dug into the lexical sets, who just would not accept that the or diphthong started with an open o, an o sound. And he insisted that it was an o. And we went through a little battle that now in retrospect, I see, I, it, I finally won when I used a north word. And he said, I concede that that's probably more open. And I was clueless because I didn't really understand that as somebody from Georgia, he was making a distinction between these two sounds that I don't make.
1: Yes.
0: So I'm able to go back in time and realize that I was, my authoritative uh, insistence on a transcription was based on my ignorance.
1: So if he's listening, that's about as good as an apology as he's going to get.
0: Please, Jake, forgive me. You taught me a lesson. (laughs) Excellent. Uh, It's always good, we've said this before, when students object. When they say, demonstrate to me that your argument makes sense. And reconcile The conflict that I have between my perceptions and what you're telling me—we should always be able to do that.
1: Yes, and we we get to learn by them doing that. So
0: uh, one up from force, and sort of in is cure, right? And we said before that we could think about these sounds as being another lexical set with. Uh, an R following it. So, kit R, dress R, palm R, thought R, uh, not really goat R, uh, but maybe goat R. <laughs> and then here, are we saying that this is foot R? That's certainly the way it would be transcribed, but historically, it's goose R. Yes. Ur.
1: Ur. And so, like kit R, it's a reduced form of the goose into yeah. that foot territory.
0: Right, because Nero actually was fleece R yeah, historically. Exactly. Uh, the R pulled it away from its extremist corner. So, yes, we've got ur. The and
1: you'll note that the lexical set word cure has that yes. yod in there. That's where you were headed, wasn't
0: it? Exactly right. So. Cure, but we could think of a few words that are pronounced by some speakers as "ur," without the yod, uh, poor and "more," or "your." Although that yod is there, it's not the same—quite the same situation. For most North Americans, I would say, "cure" is no longer a distinct category, and it's just like "nurse." Mm, cure For people in the UK, generally, uh, for RP speakers and others, Cure no longer exists and it's merged with North and Force.
1: Yeah, we get differentiation between people who say poor and poor. Uh, yes. And sometimes that's a class distinction, uh, who says poor, who says poor. Um, so, yeah. often, these things are in a little bit of free variation, and we get mm, multiple pronunciations that that almost exclusively will replace ur with or, oh, but uh, there are a few edge cases where they're still saying ur on this word or that word.
0: I remember a colleague uh, from Utah, and she, she insisted on saying tor, we're on tor, mm-hmm. and in my response to that, I realized that I I had the other merger. I kept on thinking that's odd that she says it that way, when it should be tour. <laughs> when my my version of it was really much closer to a nurse word. Yes. Uh, but for a lot of people, I'd say for a lot of North Americans, tour. Might be the only place where that ur still remains.
1: Right, it, it will remain in uh, multisyllabic words like sewer and uh, fewer, um, lure. Perhaps might be another ones where uh, lur, lore. Uh, there might be some people who will break it into two syllables. Yeah. So use one can use a word like fewer as a way of getting that ur articulation going and then try to elide it together into a diphthong, ooer ur, ur, so that it's close. Um, a word like fewer isn't at the diphthong, um, but if you bring that together you might be able to teach someone who lacks that sound how to make it.
0: Yeah, I think that's terrific. In fact, we could do a similar thing with a lot of the others. We could say that near is like seer and seer is like seer. And uh, uh, the same thing's true with square. You could say player, player, player. Uh, I can't think of one with star.
1: So uh, something like... Uh, somebody who goes to the spa, spa is a spa. Spar. <laughs>
0: <laughs> mm, we'll have to work on that one.
1: Uh, a goer... Uh, Somebody who goes. Someone who flow. Fl- uh,
0: yes, so, or, floor
1: f- or flaw, flaw
0: Yes, that's interesting Fla-er. because that really, if we make our North and force more like the aw sound, yeah, floor.
1: Floor. But you might be able to get, use that to get to an aw for like a Canadian who, who will say flaw with a nice aw sound. Uh, so you take a word like. Uh, 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 ba-ba-black sheep, bar to go to the bar. A sheep is a bar a bar.
0: Yeah, yeah, that works. So that's lovely. I think we've done all of those. Uh, what we haven't touched on are nurse and letter.
1: And how did nurse and letter get to be nurse and letter, Phil, historically?
0: Well, nurse, it's... You can sort of see the leftovers in Irish speech, for example, mm. that you'll hear people distinguishing between a Norse and uh, uh, a Hearse. Uh that hers the er sound, was historically, again, one of these vowels followed by R, and there were distinct versions of them for each of the vowels that preceded the R. And nurse represents that category, which managed to pull all of the others in towards the neutral center.
1: So R is sort of the Borg. It's assimilating those preceding vowels.
0: Exactly. And you can see that sort of centralization happening with words like food, good, blood. Some of those words became more and more centralized because of the consonants around them. And nurse words tend to be the same thing, that for whatever reason, they got more and more like the R, even when that R stopped being pronounced. So you get h-s and nurse. Uh, There's no R present, but the historical presence of R moved the initial vowel off of its, out from the perimeters in towards the center. Neat. Now, letter is the lexical set word that Wells uses for an unstressed R. It seems odd to point at these unstressed ones when all of the others have been about stressed ones, but let me tell you, this is a very, very common sound. Very. There are plenty of E-R, O-R. O-U-R. O-U-R, that's I-R. the one I was thinking. And so, letter, brother, actor, all of those are unstressed, for me and you, sized schwa. They could be non-rhotic, letter, brother, and the variation on how that schwa is realized can vary accent to accent. It tends to be pretty open in Boston, for example. Brother. Uh, I would think that probably a Cockney speaker might ha- have more tendency to open up their schwa
1: and as uh, for many North Americans, uh, at the end of an utterance, that's going to open and lengthen. So we're going to get my my brother, or mother was... Uh, my. Well, it's just more on the non-rhotic yeah, schwa, my, isn't it? I'm, I'm, I'm misspeaking here, so... Erase that.
0: So, good. Well, let's use that as a transition into comma, which is not a... It's there to mark off... Those final schwas that don't have an R underlying them.
1: Right. So, like sofa, or comma, or uh, idea. Or china. So,
0: those for you and I are distinct. Uh, uh, A diner in China, we aren't going to confuse those one has an R, one doesn't. For a non-rhotic speaker, however, it might very well be that they're phonetically identical. A dina in China. A dina from China, I'll say. Uh, And so they're pretty much identical, Uh, although, and you mentioned this in the lost episode, some speakers resist that, some non, some rhotic speakers resist that opening of comma. And so they'll say, China, even
1: at the end of an utterance. Mm -hmm. And right. that does sound kind of R-ish to us.
0: Yeah, exactly. Especially in the context of somebody who we know drops their R's. And so you had an example from You Think You Can Dance. So You like. Think
1: You Can Dance. Yes, the host, Kat Deely, she often introduces the uh, contestants. So next up, it's Donna. And she <laughs> sustains that last syllable a really long time as she calls out their name. And she doesn't open it in the way that most North Americans who would announce Donna, we would open that almost to a, a, a hut vowel, Donna, uh, whereas she kept it more close. And that Donna reads to us as Donner. And yeah. that uh, that's something that she got flack about, presumably, uh, because she doesn't do it any longer. She has changed. uh, Anytime she introduces someone whose name ends in an A, she opens it up on purpose.
0: I'm so wondering whether she would say, Peter! Or, Peter! Uh, I wonder if she's made that change for comma words and letter words as well, and I imagine she would. Yeah, she might. Yeah, Peter. All right, that's lovely. So we've covered those, and now I think... It would be useful to go into linking r uh, or linking. sandhi, or sandhi-ar. r. is that word, sandhi? It's beautiful. It's uh, It would be a good name for a child, I think. This is my daughter, Sandhi. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: and it's spelled S-A-N-D-H-I. It's a Sanskrit word uh, that essentially refers to the presence of a consonant that would otherwise be dropped occurring in a linking situation. And uh, the one obviously that we're going to talk about is the linking R, but there are other instances in other languages where other consonants aren't present and they become present in that linking situation. So we have two categories of sandhi R for English speakers, and those are the linking R and the intrusive R. And they're both intervocalic R's. Uh, They can be across the boundary between two words or within a single word across the boundary from one syllable to another. And so we'll take the example of a near word. Here they go. A non-rhotic speaker would say, Here they go. But if they said, here is, they would return that R into that linking situation. Same with square, square root. No, that's a bad example. Uh, Square package, square is the shape. It is the manifestation or the pronunciation of an R that you could say is a historical R or a spelt R, or a conceptual R. The non-rhotic speaker still has somewhere the notion that an R is present, but it isn't pronounced. So when they say, brother, there's an R there, and it will come back, brother is. Uh, if there's another vowel following it. I think that's about... It could be... I think it's about clarity and about articulatory ease. Brother is... Brother is... Brother is... It helps to make that transition to be able to sort of reach towards the alveolar ridge and to put a little bit of bracing in there. And it helps make it distinct for the listener as well.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Brother is... Brother is...
1: Yes, that distinctiveness of the abrupt uh, R makes a strong pulse in the syllable nature of the word, and that really helps to raise intelligibility.
0: And so we can see this in near-square, north-force, start-cure, nurse, and letter. All of those will behave in the same way. If comma behaves like letter... Comma is the name of a goose, uh, then, uh, then what we've got is that rule being applied in a place where, there's an, where there isn't a historic or a spelled R. And in that sense, we say that that R is intruding into a place where it doesn't belong. And so we call it an intrusive R.
1: And there are people who have sort of a bias against it. Yes, uh, absolutely and one can it's, hear sort of newscasters who've been told not to do it carefully leaving little space so they don't: yeah, the there was a study
0: about it. that wasn't they, they They sort of polled presenters on the BBC or they listened to them, but I think William Lebove did a similar thing. Uh, he went asking people in Macy's and so forth where the fourth floor was, uh, and so he would. He My understanding arranged, of
1: that study was to sort of to identify which social class exactly. had R or not post-vocalic R exactly right, on the so fourth floor. The uh, people in the in Macy's had a different. But uh, it wasn't so remember. much about linking or intrusive R.
0: It's true. Although uh, I think that the reason he chose fourth, fourth floor was so that he might elicit a linking R after the floor. Oh. I think he was looking for a linking R as well as just post-vocalic R. Oh, I did realize
1: that. Oh. Okay.
0: Oh, uh, I might be making that up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, we've got we've got linking R and we've got intrusive R. Yes. And yep. it, does Let me it say, happen everywhere?
0: Uh, an intrusive R could happen anywhere that is phonetically identical to a situation which would produce a linking R. Mm. So if we've got something that is phonetically the same as near, square, nurse, letter, north, for start, cure. But it doesn't have an R in it, and it's followed by a vowel, that could elicit this kind of linking behavior that we call an intrusive R. So let's see if we can make an example. Can near. I do that?
1: Oh, please. <laughs> so uh, uh, if we started with a word like, uh, that ends with "r. Ah, so, like the word uh, spar, to, you know, yes. to spar with someone. So,
0: it's a start, it sounds like a start, start word, word, but it isn't a start word. So it's a the word
1: spar sounds exactly the same as the word spar. Uh, so, uh, if uh, to spar is a good thing, to spar is a good thing, I would have a linking R between uh this verb of sparring to spar is a good thing but if i i want to say to go to a spa is a good thing i would put an intrusive r after that word spa uh because it sounds to a non-rhotic speaker exactly the same as spar
0: exactly Um, and the reason it's stigmatized is that it is a a natural thing but not a proper thing the historical r and whether it's in the spelling is about correctness and but that's not the way in which that impulse is manifest it's a phonetic unconscious thing Uh, so i'd say that it is natural but not correct
1: yes i mean the people who say that one's speech should match the way you write Often they, they feel like well spa is should be pronounced spa is they uh, often are no written that. that way yes yes indeed so the sort of orth, orthoopists. is that yeah. the word Phil
0: yeah I love that word uh,
1: so uh, similarly uh, a word like um, uh, roar and mm-hmm. raw raw in my accent but raw mm-hmm. could be uh, sim. Uh, 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 to roar, roar and roar, uh, to roar and roar, uh, or we'd have a linking R, roar and roar. Uh, or don't eat raw eggs. Raw eggs. So we'd have an intrusive R there. So we've got R and O. We can, of course, have it on schwa, because it's letter and comma are alike. Yeah. And really, there's only one other case, and that is when uh, we get a word like idea elided to be like near. And so, uh, idea is normally yes. to me. Idea is like a comma word because the d syllable is separate from the uh syllable. Idea, uh, mm. but if you elide it, idea, then it functions like a near word.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, so the North same Korea. principle.
1: North Korea is.
0: Uh, I have an, I have one for cure. You do. I do. The skua is a large bird. What's a skua? A skua, S-K-U-A.
1: It's a square. big seabird. Right, so like so the, like idea, we can elide it into one syllable. I don't think
0: I could get a square. Meh. Uh, no, I got nothing. Meh. There's got to be one.
1: Uh, and The word meh is popular. The <laughs> oh, word yeah. meh is popular. Exactly. M-E-H. Meh is what I'd like to say. Meh. Meh is what I want to say. <laughs> meh.
0: Uh, yes, we did uh, rule, you could also, one of my favourites is there's a floor in the floor. Right. Uh, and nurse, I suppose if nurse is a neutral vowel...
1: Can you find one with no R spelling? No, you can't.
0: Uh, yeah. Ha. Huh.
1: H-u-h. <laughs> H-U-H.
0: huh, Riz, the thing I would like to say.
1: Eh.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, but definitely letter comma. That's why comma exists. Uh, uh, we don't have a skua category because skua would be the only word in it.
1: Yes, and normally skua is... Uh, two syllables, "gu" uh, not Yeah, that's scoo. true. All right, so we've got this intrusive "r." Uh, now, we've you touched on briefly the idea of it intruding within a word. So,
0: yeah, yeah, but right, I like should, to
1: make drawings.
0: Exactly, because the the connected vowel is "ing." It doesn't matter whether it's a separate word or a separate syllable, because speech is connected. And there's no reason to separate those except that they're conceptually separated.
1: And that it's a root of a word draw and we're tacking on an ending, ing. So in some people's minds, that really is uh, uh, like two words. Draw, ring. I'm tacking it on in the same way that a new word is added. Um, I, I can't think of a word where it's multisyllabic, um, and we can insert an R in between. It's not a, it's not just a suffix on the end where we can insert the R. Um, and maybe our astute listeners can think of an example of yes. an A ah or an O oh word where there's no R in the spelling, and it goes into something else. Um, I, nothing comes to my mind.
0: No, I would I would expend too much mental energy trying to think of one. But I, that doesn't. That's not the same as saying that I don't think one exists. Uh, I I thought I'd take a brief step back uh, because I see in my notes that we've got cloth plus R, trap plus R, and kit plus R. Mm -hmm. And the way those behave internally uh, in terms of linking, not intrusive, but linking R is one that's worth pointing to. And so if I take cloth plus R, the word... Or What I would say, Oregon, Wells lists Oregon as a cloth word, mm. with the cloth sound being in the first syllable, oh, and the second syllable being, r-gen. and that's not how I conceptualize it at all. It's Oregon. Uh, and probably I'm continuing that R smoothly between the two syllables. So for me, cloth plus R equals north and forth. Yes. For me, cloth... The way I realize my cloth is the same way I realize my thought. So that makes logical sense. For some speakers, though, in those... Cloth plus R words, they're really using their lot word. They're saying, Oregon and Florida are horrible. 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 And they say, a lot, a lot oh, of Oh, you were hor- talking
1: about the accent. Oh, I thought you were just saying that they're horrible places to live.
0: No. No. Florida, I'm beginning to think, <laughs> might make that list,
1: actually. <laughs> but Oregon, definitely not.
0: No, it's a lovely place, Oregon. Or Oregon. So, So, yeah, for an RP speaker, Oregon, Florida, they're clearly cloth lot words with an R following them. Mm -hmm. Uh, The way I perceive them is north and
1: force. Right. Now, I'm going to show my Canadian wave my little flag here. Uh, How would you say B O R R O W?
0: Uh, now, that's interesting, because I would actually make that lot, borrow. Borrow. Sing I wouldn't say sorry, borrow. right? Tomorrow. Yeah, borrow and sorry don't fit the category for me of Oregon and horrible.
1: Right. And whereas Canadians, the point I was making is that we make them or words, so we've got borrow and tomorrow and sorry. And that's a distinctively Canadian sound.
0: And you'd say that's identical to Oregon and Florida. Absolutely, yeah?
1: Yes. And so, a word like forest seems to be more commonly a North Force word in North America. Yeah. Uh, uh, whereas, uh, some people, you're not likely to get forest, though some people will say forest. I think it's less common. Uh, it is
0: a pretty localized East Coast New York feature. And, interestingly, it got picked up into Good American Speech by Edith Skinner, So uh, I've certainly, in the voice coaching world, heard people advise to say the forest of Arden. Yes. Uh, Probably also the word conjure fits into the same group of what I take to be very peculiar old-fashioned leftover pronunciations. But again, I'm biased towards my pronunciations. They seem neutral and normal and beautiful, etc., And so when I hear somebody say forest, it seems very odd to me Mm -hmm. and forest seems much better to me. Now, I think that there was an agenda, not only uh, a bit of Anglophilia and the context of New York in the 20s that led towards that choice. I think, and we'll find this, I think, with the others in this set of three categories If you're trying to reduce roticity, making this choice allows you to treat the first syllable as non-rhotic and the beginning of the next syllable as an alveolar approximate R. So we get horror, horrible, rather than horror, horrible.
1: So in a way that that, uh, R consonant R, starting the second syllable, we get a more abrupt R. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it reminds me of the difference between a speed bump and a speed mm. hump. Do you have the <laughs> speed bumps and speed humps? Speed bumps are the things you have in a parking lot. They're about a foot wide and about maybe four or five inches high. And you really have to slow down to go over a speed bump.
0: do you have strier?
1: <laughs> Is that striped paint on the... You have I, to slow down I to remember
0: being in Toronto and running into these uh,
1: mm-hmm. bouncy there these, little... There are these uh, what are called rumble zones. Yes. As you come to the end of, say, a highway that's about to end, they they groove the road. Yes. And as you go over it, it goes... Uh, similar to doing a bilabial and alveolar and uvular trill all at once. <laughs> um, and it, it really makes you wake up. If you're snoozing, you're going to wake up. But uh, uh, a speed hump is about four to six feet wide. And it's mm. still... It, so you can go over it at a fair clip. You can't go full speed, not 30 miles per, per hour over it. But uh, you you don't have to almost stop the way a speed bump causes you. So, to me, if you're doing horror, that's like a speed hump. It's mm-hmm. horror that uh rhotic schwa going into maybe a bit of a consonant r. It's it's slower, it's not as abrupt. Whereas horror, it's it's a uh, shorter and it's more distinctive and uh, Creates a cleaner sense of the first syllable, which arguably raises its intelligibility. Um, But the duration of the
0: R does not necessarily have anything to do with the quality or duration of the preceding vowel. Yes. I can say horror, horror, and make it horror. There's no inherent need to shift the quality of the first vowel. Exactly. And I feel like the choice of horror made it easier to prevent strong roticity.
1: I I think that there's one other thing going on there is that if your native pronunciation is horror, uh, to switch to horror feels like a shift to of a different lexical set. And by shifting to a different lexical set, it's a different enough change that the muscle memory that is engaged in saying the thing you've always said is disengaged to a certain degree, and you can make this new pronunciation, adopt it more quickly. And so I bet you get greater success right away if you say, don't say horror, say horror. And it's just so different that, oh, I can make that shift. Now, to take horror and go horror and just change the R, which is a more challenging pronunciation to adopt, I think, you'd have less success. Um, And
0: and that's the, in English as a second, in in language acquisition studies, it's the markedness Mm -hmm. question that people tend to pick up the odd things first because they're so different they notice them. This, of course, comes to a question of pedagogy. Is it most expedient to make people make large changes that they can really do and then trust that they'll sort of settle back towards something useful afterwards? <laughs> or is it better to work carefully through the experience with the student so that they become masterful in making those tiny distinctions? I well, vote for the latter.
1: Well, you know, there, there's an argument for uh, error less or less error learning and that by starting with things that are where students are more likely to have success, that it will reinforce their attitude toward learning. And so here I am having success. I'm doing something that's far away from me. And because it's far away, it's more marked, as you say. And so I I have greater success. I have success. I'm convinced I can do this. I go on to more difficult things. And that success builds on top of itself. I've been toying with an idea that I haven't been able to bring myself to do. Which is to start far away from native, you know, generally I start close at hand. How do you yeah. talk? And, and then we'll make a little subtle, subtle shift and then we'll go to more and challenging further and further away. I have this thought that what would it be like if we did the opposite? We started as far away as we can get and do something that you will never use. Um, and so your permission to fail is very high. And you can, the, your investment in getting it right Very low. Uh, But because it's so marked, so different from the way you normally speak, then you're encouraged to, I don't know, play with it a little bit more.
0: So by starting with Japanese, you're going to introduce very different sounds. The students will feel like they could give it a try. They have no investment in it. And then I think that you're also saying... There'll be plenty of errors. They won't be quite as successful in terms of their real success. And we don't care because most of our students, because very few of them actually are going to play Japanese people. uh, That's something about our education, perhaps. uh, Then that's fine because they've screwed up nothing they have to worry about. And then they can go back to learning accents that are closer to them, and they'll have developed some sensitivity in that process.
1: I I, I mean, it's an idea that I I have. I I, I still have the guts to do it. Um, Well, I'd
0: like to make a suggestion, actually, because this is an exercise that I did for years and then I have stopped doing recently just because my curriculum changed. I took the example passages from the handbook of the IPA. Yes. Uh, which are freely available at the University of Victoria site. Uh, The narrative passages are broken down into teeny little bits, but I just edited them all together. And then I would give each student a language. I wouldn't tell them what it was, but they had to speak a passage of Igbo. And I basically had them do progressively better improvisations of that. And this was before we did any anatomy work, any phonetics work. The first thing out the door was how well can you apprehend and improvise this language.
1: So they they learn it by uh rote. Yeah, they and then they was, pretend to do it. They this is parody. where
0: I diverged because for several years I said take this listen to it a lot but then just fake it right then i got uh, perhaps a group of very serious minded people who set about trying to basically invent their own phonetics to very carefully precisely reproduce what i had given them and so the assignment shifted a little bit and i think i let it go but my hope is that just the experience of saying <laughs> that I'm going to give it a try. Uh, And I I have no idea how to do this. If nothing else, it will make them realize how much they don't know and how much they need me. (laughs) But I also think that there's a sort of joy in that, that the actor's experience is to try on something strange and try to inhabit it. So, I don't know, I've sort of let it go, uh, but it does in some way answer the question that you're, referring to, that people are given a chance to do something really weird before they come back to before we are it's always a question of how much precision we're introducing along the way that that we're asking students to make some adjustments and self-investigation how much and at what point how detailed do we want to be? That was a lovely footnote rabbit hole. Mm. But let's steer back onto the road here. So because we, we were w- talking about... Oh, yes.
1: No, we were t- I was going to sum up, and you were doing it so ably, and I don't know why I was interrupting. So we were talking about horror, horror, horror. And- exactly.
0: So that's cloth plus R, uh, variably realized as horror, horror, or horror, or horror. In which case, the roticity is sort of taken it over. Uh, we also have trap plus R, which in some accents is Harry, Mary, Paris. Guaranteed. The first syllable is trap, and then the second syllable begins with R. And, in many accents, mine included, the trap has been shifted into E, eh, and the whole thing has become square. Harry, Paris. The que- there is a detailed question here about where that R is occurring in that linking R, which I think we didn't fully deal with. And I'm reminded that Jeff Morrison asked me a question about this.
1: Would you read it? He sent it? me an
0: email just this morning, fortunately. Uh, It's a good thing that we lost our recording or we wouldn't have been able to answer his question, but I think we probably actually did. He asks, what happens to roticity, the R-hook diacritic, when intervocalic R is after a centering diphthong? So that's the question we've been talking about. But then there's a question about how we would transcribe or how we might pronounce here is, he, riz, uh or in this case of peris, my pronunciation, do I say paris, do I say paris, or do I say paris, that is to say, if I'm making a diphthong, eh, er, and there's roticity on that er, do I keep that roticity when I move on to the R consonant beginning the next syllable? Mm. It's a transfer- transcription question, but I think it's also a pronunciation question. Mm. And the answer is, you write what you say, you write what you hear, and you could hear all three.
1: Sure. So if we had a word like uh, Derry, the city, yeah. the area in Ireland, Derry, uh, we could have epsilon consonant R, re. Yeah, yeah, dairy. dairy. Uh, we could have uh, the place where one gets milk, dairy, and, and one could pronounce it dairy. You could print exactly the same. You could. They could yeah. be exactly the same. We could have epsilon r. Epsilon r. Epsilon r. Epsilon r. We could have dairy uh, for both of them. So we could have R coloring in the first sol- syllable, dare, and then re in the second syllable. Mm-hmm. We could even have. Our coloring in the first syllable dare and then e in the final syllable yeah. dairy so again more of a hump and less of a speed bump um, so it really depends on how you say it some people will argue for dare re so we get the square diphthong plus the consonant R in the second syllable the you know this is back to the you know classic good American speech for this stage yeah, Um yeah then that that's about cleaning the r coloring out of the first syllable so that the second syllable has all the r and again the theory being that theory, uh, theory being that you get a uh, uh, a greater sense of that square diphthong without the r coloring and then the abrupt r starting the second syllable creates a greater contrast between vowel consonant, which makes it more intelligible. That's the argument, Um, but it also sounds like a voice of power of a certain period. And that was the one thing you kind of left out when you were discussing why they were choosing it, is that, um, you know, the people who had power when that accent was at its, uh, what's that, its zenith, uh, that uh, those people... Lacked our coloring, and so they were likely to say things like uh, "dairy," so that we had that little schwa speed bump before the consonant. Yes,
0: onwards. so there. The, I believe I encapsulated that into the word "anglophilia," that ah, American okay. speech trainers tend to think that British speech is somehow superior. And and I do think that being able to l- reduce our coloring can improve intelligibility if your roticity is so strong that it actually subsumes all the other shapes in your mouth and you basically can't get out of your R. Right. You get more distinction of one sound to the next if you can introduce roticity and then release roticity. So that's, I think, de- definitely worth working, but it's, often, it's important to call it what it is. Yeah. And, and that's what we're saying.
1: So, so th- there's we're sort of back to our Mary 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 exactly. discussion, aren't we?
0: So uh, N E R R Y for people who make a three way distinction is pronounced M Epsilon R Bob uh, turned R some sort of centralized E Mary the uh, to wed M a r r y is trap is ash, Ma, re again no roticity in the first syllable the r is beginning the second syllable, and then, uh, the lady Mary, is one of these things that we have to say to Jeff is either one or the other depending on how you pronounce it, which is either Ma, re or Mary.
1: Now it seems to me the people who are likely to say. Mary, Mary, and Mary are likely to be non rhotic speakers.
0: Yes, because as we just said, our roticity can come in and level the playing field. Uh, if we say that the lady Mary is happy, Mary, because she's going to marry, then if I have strong roticity, Mary's Mary because she's going to marry, I My vowels have been draped in R. They don't have enough agility to move into these other shapes. And there's no problem with intelligibility in most contexts that those words are homophones. We live with homophones all the time.
1: Uh, Yes, your homophonia is something we can tolerate. (laughs) Yes. I think the 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 challenge of that, the, the, you know, the people who are sticklers for that come from this kind of pseudo-accent that was originally non-rhotic, right? This good speech yeah. for the American stage was non-rhotic, and it's in its uh, development, it's become slightly rhotic, at least. Um, and so its holdover to Mary, Mary, and Mary um, it seems perhaps a little unusual, given that it's now sort of accepting of some roticity. And uh, um, that, you know, if you look at New Yorkers who historically have Mary, Mary, and Mary, uh, even New Yorkers who have roticity now, and some New Yorkers do, um, they maintain the distinction of those three lexical sets in those words, as a means of hanging on to their New York linguistic identity. And so there are New Yorkers with rhotic sounds with the three-way split. But a couple more generations, I wouldn't be surprised if that distinction went away.
0: Yeah. And it's useful to teach our students that that, that distinction exists and to help them to get good at it because they may be speaking in an accent that requires it. Mm-hmm. So next on my list is kit plus r, uh, which is distinct from near if we say that the first syllable, let's say, of spirit is spi, and the second syllable is rit, uh, that if you give somebody a command to take a spear and plunge it into something, you're telling them to spear it. Uh, and if you ask them to do it vivaciously, you say, spirit with spirit. And so for me, both of those are homophones. Spirit with spirit. Ah uh, uh, I think I did that slightly differently. Spirit with spirit. Yeah. And the the distinction of kit plus r is something that again is more in non-rhotic accent. Spirit.
1: Can you think of any other words other than spirit? Uh well, something like uh, mirror. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Mirror. Uh, uh, and that so.
0: one's interesting because there's another R coming after it. And so, what's very common in strongly rhotic speech is to have it all sort of collapse into one ball of roticity and have mirror.
1: Yes. One could compare by the lake or mirror or, yeah, the, the mirror or lake. Mirror or <laughs> yes. lake. Mirror yes, lake, yes. mirror lake. They could have merged and be similarly the same. I, I can't see you saying uh, "mirror" as "mirror mir" the mirror lake. <laughs> if you distinguish "mirror" from "mirror or lake," "mirror or lake," they would be distinct. Yeah.
0: Run that by me again.
1: The the mirror or lake, the mirror lake is going to have a mirror or it's going to have yes. the diphthongization. Always, yes. but the, the mirror. mirror the mirror. If I'm doing the kit, plus R, yes. I could have a clean mirror, and there would be no mirror. Mirror, yeah. Yes, mirror. and to make sure the that I
0: is. maintain the distinction of the word mirror, I wouldn't shift it into mirror. Yes. Got yes. I'm with you. <laughs> There's another one on this list, uh, which would be foot plus R. Uh and yeah, what I've had an example in my head and I've I've since forgotten it.
1: Fuhrer uh Fury? But it wouldn't be cure, it would be oh, oh rural. Rural, yes. And mural. Now we could argue that those are cure. Rural. rural.
0: Uh, but we, But you can say rural. Yeah, definitely. And rural, uh, rural. rural horror story is one that I'm sure that we've run into in, in speech training. Right. Or on 30 Rock, uh, the character Jenna is in a film uh, which is the Rural Juror. And she always pronounces it, oh, yes, it's And nobody understands what she's talking about. And that's, again, just one of these places where the foot or cure is being consumed by the roticity. And so rural, I, the street I grew up on was Rural Route 1.
1: Wow. <laughs> and, and it was pretty monosyllabic, Rural Route 1. Right. Canada, Canada's are rural, rural routes.
0: Rural <laughs> yes, One. Exactly. Rural, route
1: rural Route 1. Typically uh, written RR1. Yes,
0: exactly. Now it's fancy. My parents changed it to Kestrel Ridge Road. So it's been officially changed by the county. All right. So we've covered that. We've covered these sort of quasi-lexical sets that have a separate short vowel followed by an R. We've covered intrusive and... Uh, and linking R. Yeah.
1: So now- There's one
0: more thing on my mental list that I know we talked about in the last episode, which is sort of southern R, uh. Uh, which I think of as stealth R. We can very easily talk about roticity as a feature of some southern accents, like Texas. Far, near, square, nurse, letter, north, force, start. However, even in accents that are pretty strongly rhotic, you can get somebody saying, nurse, but letter. I wrote a letter to the nurse. And that's confusing. And and sometimes these same speakers will, even completely non-rhotic speakers like an old
1: uh, Alabama,
0: they'll do no rhoticity anywhere. But they won't do linking R. They'll say, far away, very good. And that's troublesome to me, because why would an accent resist this linking R? Other non-rhotic accents don't have that linking R. Or they do have a linking R.
1: Well, there are some non-rhotic accents that don't have linking R, such as uh, South African.
0: So, So save that one for a moment, because that's sort of the opposite case of this one. Right. Uh, In this case, I argue that there is an articulatory R, there's a gesture of tongue retraction and bunching that doesn't produce much acoustic effect. So, I say far, far, far away, I am actually making a little action that's like an R, And you can see in the video that I'm sort of like embodying it, scrunching my body up. Uh, It's tongue retraction, tongue bracing, molar bracing. And it ends up sounding like no R at all. North, north. But for a long time, for a long time, I don't have any need of introducing an alveolar R in there. I've already got... And R for a long time, it's just not producing much acoustic effect. Yeah. At least that's a way of dealing with the fact that y- you'll have what appears to be a lack of linking R.
1: And I think we would hear it, excuse me, we would hear it in the timing of it, that that, that there would be a yeah. sort of a, a, a moment of R time where yes. far Yes, for away, a long time. Yeah, we'd hear for a that.
0: very long time. Yeah. There is, in the South, a a variation in roticity. Some of it has to do with race, that African-American vernacular English has less roticity. Uh, I mentioned in the last episode that I'm working on a play that's set in Longview, Texas, which is not so far away from the Louisiana border in the northern part of Texas. So it's northeast Texas. And there's an African-American character in there who, he definitely does roticity on near and square, but not on north force start. Uh, He does some of this sort of shadow R on nurse, and he seems to completely drop R's in letter situations. So he'll say an orange or snicker. But he'll say, here, I'll have an orange or a snicker here. And it, it's sort of disconcerting, and I'm actually a little worried that if he, the actor does it accurately, the audience will think that he's not doing it right. Because it's such a dramatic difference between some roticity and then what appears to be a complete lack of roticity. But even with speakers who you can hear are pretty erotic in Texas, Texas you'll sometimes if it's unstressed, they'll say... Uh, well we're going near there and they'll just sort of leave it out and I haven't yet sort of sussed out what the what the rules governing degrees of roticity are in these rhotic southern accents. Fortunately, when working with actors, listening and becoming aware of the possibilities very quickly leads to a sort of intuitive sense of what sounds right. Yeah. So you wanted to talk about South African linking R. Yeah,
1: that, uh, l- uh, I think it's intrusive R that they lack, actually. So that they, mm-hmm. they'll say far away. But uh, when they say uh, the spot is they're they're not going to insert an R there. So uh, that's, that's a subtle difference. But yeah. for us to assume that all non-rhotic accents include intrusive R, I, I don't think that is true. Um, so, uh you know, it's good good to know that there are places where it's to expect that you must listen to make sure don't assume non-rhotic therefore they're doing intrusive r. And
0: um, I would also suggest then that we would expect South African accents to be strongly non-rhotic that start north and force no roticity at all, no shadow of roticity. Yes. Uh, whereas in the southern American accents, there's a little cloud of roticity on the horizon all the time which will allow for these links to happen. But the South African speaker, when they're when they have spa is, there's no R to come to the rescue there conceptually mm-hmm. to make that link. I don't know, that's, that's a pinhead theory.
1: <laughs> okay, so the last thing that we talked about, that we haven't touched on yet is triphthongs.
0: Ah, yes. We talked about short vowels plus R, lot plus R, trap plus R, kit plus R. And we could throw triphongs into the same category and say they are diphthong plus R. Right. And so the two most common, the ones that we think about and talk about and teach most, yeah. are price plus R and mouth plus R. So
1: so, I'm gonna... l- let's give an example. So, we have yeah. sire and sour, and right. we, we can say those as two-syllable words, sire, or mm-hmm. as a one-syllable word, sire. Similarly, sour or sour. Generally, it seems to me that that elision to one syllable happens because either you're speaking very rapidly or because some writer is purposefully <laughs> making a two-syllable word fit into a hole that fits a one-syllable uh, chunk in a bit of verse. So we're eliding in order to make the rhythm continue in its metrical form.
0: Right. So. Uh before a muse of fire that would ascend. Yes. Uh, or whose action is no stronger than a flower. I suppose that could be a feminine ending. Could so. be, could be. Um, uh,
1: so those are those are the most common instances of where those happen in English.
0: Um, and they are generally transcribed the same way you would transcribe the diphthong, I, er... And and for a rhotic speaker, that's a hook schwa. And in your system, because we don't add brevs and other markers, we simply put those three sounds in a row without any periods in between to indicate a syllable break. Right. So we get a, e, er, ire. I made that front A kind of backish. I apologize. You're forgiven. Thank you. So that's a printed A a small capital I, and then a schwa of some stripe. And for the other, it's R, which is print a U uh, schwa. Now, because I like to put brevs in non-syllabic marks, I'm left in a bit of a quandary as to where I'm going to put them. Because if it's all one sound... The first sound is the nucleus, and that's clearly the strongest bit. And the other two bits, ir, or, are both unstressed, short, non-syllabic, and so I have to decide whether I'm going to put a brev over each one or a non-syllabic mark under each one, or get on your boat and not bother to put any of them
1: on there. And you couldn't just put it on the middle one, could you?
0: Well, I could, but then a clever student might say, do you mean that that one's short, but the second, the third one isn't, and isn't that a two-syllable ire? Right. And so I, I sort of, to be consistent, have to, if I'm going to deal with one, I have to deal with them both.
1: Right. And in our ghost phantom episode, we discuss the idea of perhaps you could put a smile above one and a frown under the other. Uh, but that's sort of splitting two worlds, right? Because the bread yeah. is about length, and that's sort of a phonetic distinction, and the uh, non-syllabic is sort of a phonological uh, yeah. notation. So, Although it has a,
0: a, a timing, you know, it has to be heard somehow.
1: Right. Uh, and so, uh, the, the seems to me that the schwa is likely to be thought of as possibly a new syllable, al, new syllable, er. So perhaps brev, then, non-syllabic, would sort of say, don't make this a new syllable. Um,
0: However, if I'm free with my syllable break marks everywhere, then if you don't see a syllable break mark, then you don't think it's a separate syllable. That's my take on it. And I tend to not use those syllable break marks unless I'm clearing up an ambiguity. Uh, Whereas some folks just love them syllable break marks. They throw them all over the place. Right. So.
1: So we've got our two favorites, but there are others. So uh, generally words that are less likely to be alighted into a single syllable. So we've got sire, we've got sour. We could have sawyer, like Tom. Sawyer. choice plus R. Yes. And so we could alight that together into a single syllable. Um, We could have sower, someone who sows seeds. So uh, so that would be um, goat plus r, and so sore, Um, and a soothsayer could be square. uh, uh, Sorry, uh, uh, face Face. plus r and uh, not square. So differentiating sower from feeling sore, or soothsayer from uh, the sound like in bear. So bear who make aspirin and bear naked. Um, so it's important that there might be a distinction there. There's a problem that happens as we go faster with these diphthongs is yeah. they start start to smooth. And so air starts to become air. Uh, it becomes a diphthong. And so it may just merge into a diphthong and not really be a trifthong. I think there is a tryphthong that sits somewhere between... Two syllables, a, er, and air, uh, that is uh, more rapid, but still maintains the three vowel qualities.
0: It's interesting that I, I would think that player, for example, is resistant to, to this. I, don't, I can't think of a, a North American English speaker who would allow player to become player.
1: Oh, I can. Yeah, I can hockey players. <laughs> oh, Lots good. of there hockey players, um, and uh, uh, it does. start So the to sound quality like of bear. the vowel is still
0: high. Players,
1: players, players. 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 and but. I think that many of the people who distinguish, uh, who, who who do this smoothing, will distinguish uh, uh, something like player from uh, a word like bear by making bear more open. And yeah. so, if we co- contrast bear, who make uh, aspirin and uh, smooth it so we get bear and bear. That's a bare faced lie about the company bear. Yeah. And so there would be a distinction. Uh, so a uh, sore is someone who sows some seed. He worked so hard that sore was sore. And they might have a yeah. distinction between a sore who would be more O-like and sore which might be a little bit more open so, O-like.
0: So a Canadian... Uh, A big, hairy, Canadian gay man who is promiscuous is a bear and a player. A bear and a player. So the distinction there is about the vowel. He's not a bear and a player. Bear player. Yeah. A, (laughs) A bear who's a player. You know. He gets a lot of action. I'm sure that he's. A I'm sure he has his reasons. Okay, uh, that is terrific. I think that we've got that covered. Oh, what, what we haven't talked about is the fact that if we do break those triphthongs apart, we might mark the syllable distinction with uh, an approximant
1: or a semi-vowel even. Yeah,
0: a player, a or a flower.
1: Yeah. Yes. We distinct, tend to see things like in fewer, uh, particularly for the people who don't have the Ur lexical set, um, the Cure lexical set, the fewer, sewer. Uh, it's, my, it, it's in my mind that they put it there. Is, it, is that sort of citation form or is, it, is that really exaggerated citation form? Frequently, when I'm asking people to transcribe things, they they jump to citation form, but it's almost as if they're going to beyond citation form to yeah. emphatic form. Uh, player, uh, I, didn't well, say, you... I didn't say I didn't say I didn't say bear. I said bear. Uh,
0: certainly, player is spelled out with a with a Y in it. Uh, obviously, it's in the actual spelling of the word, but there is some sense that playa, play yeah, that you're marking the syllable break with a ya. Yeah. And, and because you're pointing out that you're dropping the R because you're being so cool about it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure, actually. I, I mean, in songs, come on, baby, like my fire. But in normal speech, are we really doing much of that?
1: It's only, uh, it would only be for emphatic purposes, right? Fire. It seems to me.
0: Yeah. But again, we have to stand ready as phoneticians to describe what we hear and to, to record it in a way that's readable for the person looking at the transcription. And you're right that there is a sort of uh, the observer problem in phonetics that when you pay attention to something, you increase its prominence and its stress... And you end up doing the more than citation form as you suggested. Have we covered everything?
1: Everything that we have on our list. So I think we're ready to say That's goodbye.
0: Fabulous. So uh, already will have appeared the Africa episode. It just started. went out, actually. Wonderful. So people are listening to this episode 33. Uh, and do we know what our next episode 34 is going to be? Uh, it ought to go back to a consonant, but I suppose we don't know which one yet.
1: Yeah, we, we've sort of run out of consonants in my <laughs> mind. Uh, well, but well, we'll... We talked sur- about the possibility of doing a review of all the fricatives, all the plosives, all the approximants, so that we're kind of talking general categories. So perhaps uh, fricatives might be our next.
0: Excellent. And we've got things like diacritics and uh, things that we haven't touched on yet. Certainly, though, if our listeners had something they really wanted
1: us to cover, they could send us an email. To glossonomia (laughs) at (laughs) gmail.com. Excellent.
0: Uh, It's been terrific. Thank you so much. Uh, let's just, between you and I, say that this recording was so much better than the one that got lost.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: And how lucky we are that that happened.
1: And today we're trying out a new form of recording. We're using a tool that records the two of us straight through Skype. And so we'll see how that turns out. And um, maybe it'll be something we keep and maybe it won't be. So uh, we'll, there's a question in the air about the quality yeah. of this, how this turns out. So
0: Do let us know. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Eric. I'll talk to you next time.
1: Next time. Bye-bye. Bye.